Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you today. Um, it's wonderful to have our group back from Houston that was down working with the Impact Church of Christ. Um, I'm especially thrilled about that because they brought my wife back with them, and so it's good to have her back. Uh, we bring one group back, and we sent another one on its way. We have a group that's up at Red River at the family encampment working up there this weekend and the first couple of days of next week, so I ask you to keep them in your prayers as well, so don't forget about the people who are up there. also want to mention and remind you that tonight is our annual area-wide worship service here at Netherwood Park. That'll be at 5 o'clock tonight. I'll have more to say about that later on today. Well, today we're going to be talking about the church. We'll be exploring the importance of church unity. I think this is a really timely topic because we look around us and we see that unity is not the hallmark of our world today. It's a timely topic because churches who lose their unity lose their power to stand as God's witness to the divisive, the fractured communities that surround us. We'll be working out of the 14th chapter of Romans. This would be a great time to grab your analog Bible or your digital Bible and turn there. Romans chapter 14. So over the last few weeks, we've been studying out of Romans chapters 12 and 13. And we've observed that Paul is taking us through a transformation progression. Paul began this section in chapter 12 at verse 1 by saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not conformed, but transformed. And then Paul's been telling us how that transformation takes place and what that transformation looks like in our lives. First, he told us that if we will transform our thinking about God and about what God has done for us, then that will transform how we think about ourselves. We won't think more highly of ourselves than we should. And then Paul told us that if we transform our thinking about our brothers and sisters, if we will acknowledge them as children of God, truly our brothers and sisters, he says that will transform our love for them. And then next he told us that if we'll transform our thinking about governmental authorities, if we'll recognize that they're put in place by God and are in service to him, that that will transform our submission to them. And then last week we heard Paul tell us to transform our attitude about our neighbors, our attitude about those who aren't like us. And Paul told us that if we love everybody like Jesus Christ, who needs the love of Christ, the impact of Christ's love will be transformed. It will be spread. It will grow. And then this week, we're going to see Paul turn his attention back to the church. We're going to hear him address a specific problem in the church in Rome. But we're also going to see that that specific problem is just one example of a more general problem. It's a more general problem that we see in the world around us. And it's a more general problem that unfortunately we also see in us. We see in the church. 
And that general problem is a lack of unity. Specifically, it's a problem that we don't have unity any time that there is any kind of diversity. And the problem in the world and the problem in the church is that unity just doesn't naturally grow out of diversity. In fact, the natural response to diversity is disunity. As I mentioned, we see that all around us, don't we? That seems to be the defining characteristic of our society right now, doesn't it? Instead of unity, we see discord, we see dissension, we see divisions. We see that any differences that we might have are used as a wedge to drive us apart. And for many people, it seems like the only path to unity that they're willing to offer is conformity. In fact, I think it's probably human nature to demand conformity as a condition of unity. Here's what human nature says. Human nature says, believe as I believe, feel as I feel, think as I think, do as I do, and then, and only then, will I be glad to fellowship with you. That's the world's solution to unity. If you'll conform to me, then I will unite with you. And all we have to do is look around us to see that that solution simply doesn't work. In fact, demanding conformity as a condition of unity simply drives people farther apart. It increases discord and dissension and divisions. And Paul is going to tell us that what's true in the world is also true in the church. Demanding conformity as a condition of unity simply doesn't work. See, when we conform to that destructive pattern of the world, our churches become places of discord and dissension and division. Instead of what they were intended to be, havens of peace and harmony and unity. And when we conform to the world, we look just like the world. And when we look just like the world, we lose our witness to the world. Which is why Paul is now turning his attention to unity within the church. See, Paul sees the church in Rome conforming to that destructive pattern of the world. And Paul calls them back to the gospel. Paul says, in light of God's mercies extended through Jesus Christ to you, you need to have transformed living. He calls them back to unity. So what's going on in the church in Rome? Well, here's some context. One of the first things that we need to understand about the church in Rome was that that was a dramatically diverse group of Christians. In fact, I would say their differences make our differences look very minor in comparison. As we see, as we look at the church, the diversity in the church in Rome can be understood by looking at the two extremes in the church in Rome. So on one end of the spectrum is this group that Paul calls the weak. He says they have weak faith. These are the brothers and sisters in the church who Paul identifies as having weak faith. Not a weak faith in the sense that they didn't believe in God. 
Not a weak faith in that they didn't believe in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, they strongly believed in God. They strongly believed in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't say that they're weak in the sense that their salvation is in question. Their salvation isn't in question. But Paul calls their faith weak because they have a hard time believing that their faith in God and their faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross is enough. So in their weakness, they continue to seek to earn God's favor, and they do that by following the law, by following those rules and regulations See, like Paul, these brothers and sisters were Jews. But unlike Paul, they continued to believe that they had to keep all of the old Jewish customs and all the old Jewish laws. And Paul talks about some of those laws and customs. Laws and customs about what they ate and about keeping the Sabbath and about honoring the various feast days. And one of the specific problems that this group of people had in Rome was they really couldn't trust the meat market. It was really difficult to be certain that the meat that you bought at the meat market was kosher. It was okay under the law to eat it. And so their solution was to not eat any meat, so they had become vegetarians. So at one extreme, at one end of the spectrum in the church are these festival-attending, vegetable-eating, law-observing Jews. But there's another extreme. At the other end of that spectrum is a group of brothers and sisters that Paul identifies as strong, as having strong faith. Not strong in the sense that their belief in God and the work of Jesus was superior to the weak group. It wasn't. Not strong in the sense that their salvation was more assured than the weak group. It wasn't. But Paul identifies them as strong because they didn't have a hard time believing that their faith in God and their faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross was enough. So in their strength, they didn't feel compelled to seek to earn God's favor through following the law through following those laws, those rules, those regulations. And unlike Paul, these brothers and sisters were Gentiles. But like Paul, they didn't believe they had to keep all of those old Jewish laws and customs. And because they didn't care about those laws, they didn't care about those customs, they were carnivores. They were probably omnivores. They didn't care where their meat came from. And they also didn't care about observing those Jewish festivals. So that's the other extreme of the church. These are the festival-avoiding, meat-eating, law-ignoring Gentiles. And they're a long ways apart. And believe it or not, those differences that they had led to tension. Tension in the church, tension between the groups. And make no mistake, what was playing out in the church in Rome then is a tension that continues to play out in churches today. Not about meat eating, not about Jewish festivals, but about various other issues. 
We see in churches today what we saw then, that the strong, and in the case in Rome, it was those festival-avoiding, meat-eating, law-ignoring Gentiles, the strong tend to look down on. The strong tend to feel superior to their weak brothers and sisters, feel superior to those who feel compelled to attend the festivals and not eat the meat. But that's not the only source of tension. To add to the tension, the weak brothers and sisters in the church, in the church in Rome and in the church today. In Rome, it was the festival-attending, vegetable-eating, law-observing Jews. See, the, the weak tend to judge the strong. They tend to judge the strong because the strong refuse to conform. They refuse to believe and feel and think and do as they do. So there's this tension. It's affecting their unity and it's affecting their witness to the world around them. So Paul steps in with a solution. So what's the solution to this kind of tension? Well, we all know what the easy solution is, right? Form two churches. Split apart. You've got those kind of differences. You form two churches. The carnivores for Christ could meet on the north side of town, and the juicers for Jesus could meet on the south side of town, and everybody could be happy and not deal with these differences and this tension. That would be the easy way, but that's not God's way. Or Paul, as a person of authority, he could try to bring peace and unity by commanding those strong to just just go along. You know, just humor them. Stop eating meat. Start attending those Jewish festivals. Just go along to get along. Or conversely, he could command the weak to stop taking the law so seriously. You can say, just stop it with the kosher food and all those festivals already. And that might be a tempting route to take, but that also is not God's way. Instead, Paul's going to show that the right solution, God's way, is to unite as one. Neither group conformed to the other, but everyone conformed and transform to the image of Christ. So let's listen to the first part of Paul's unity solution for the church in Rome. Romans chapter 14, verse 1, he writes this. He says, Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. 
If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. It's for this very reason that Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Wow. Paul calls on them to do some difficult things, some transformative things. He starts out by saying, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. You may be aware that that has been a disputable matter in the church for years. What are the disputable matters? Well, those are the matters of opinion. Those are the matters of conscience. They are the numerous issues and decisions for which God hasn't given us clear guidance. And that isn't to say that they're not important. Oftentimes, like here in Rome, the disputable matters are very important. But we also know disputable matters are a minefield, aren't they? We could do this exercise. I could give you my list of disputable matters, and I know that many, if not all of you, would dispute my list, right? Just as I would probably dispute your list. Even our list of disputable matters is a disputable matter. So I'm not going to give you my list. But I will give you two extremes when it comes to disputable matters that are clearly wrong. So first, it is clearly wrong to act as if almost everything is a disputable matter of conscience. God has given clear direction in many matters. And if our conscience tells us that something is right when God's word says that it is wrong, then there is no dispute. Our conscience is wrong and God's word is right. But it's also clearly wrong to act as if almost nothing is a disputable matter of conscience. Yes, God has given us clear direction in many matters. But he hasn't given us clarity in every matter. God has given us the Bible, and the Bible is our guide. But he's also given us the ability to think and reason. And he's given us the spirit to guide us and teach us. And he's given us brothers and sisters who walk along beside us. And as we see in the church in Rome, even God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing brothers and sisters won't always agree. And you'll notice Paul doesn't tell us to agree on all things. Instead, he tells us to be united in all things. And that kind of transformed unity doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen naturally. See, the weak brothers and sisters, they've got to transform 
But the strong brothers and sisters, they also have to transform. And we heard in that passage, Paul gives some very pointed advice. He asked some very direct and I think in many ways uncomfortable questions. And they apply to both extremes in the church, the weak and the strong. Because of time constraints today, we're just going to consider Paul's questions for the weak. We're going to consider Paul's questions for those who tend to judge their brothers and sisters because they won't conform to their way of doing things. But next week... We'll look at Paul's questions for the strong. His questions for those of us who tend to feel superior to and look down on those who cling to traditions that they feel are no longer necessary. Two different sets of questions. So which sets of questions should you listen to? Should you pay attention this week to the questions for the weak? Not of the weak, for the weak. Those who aren't strong. Or should you wait for next week and listen to the questions directed to the strong? Well, if you're anything like me, you should listen to both. Because if you're like me, sometimes you're the weak brother or sister, and sometimes you're the strong brother or sister. If you're like me, it depends on the matter that we're talking about. See, in some cases, I'm the weak brother. In some cases, I judge you because you won't conform to the way that I think that things should be done. But in other cases, I'm the strong brother. I feel superior to you. I look down on you because you won't let go of things that I believe just don't matter. Sometimes I'm the weak brother. Sometimes I'm the strong brother. So if you're like me, you need to listen to both sets of the questions. Which means that you need to come back next week, and that's not a disputable matter. So I'll expect you all to be here. So in the time we have left from Romans chapter 14, let's listen again to Paul's questions for the week. Question number one. This is directed towards my fellow weak brothers and sisters. Who are we to condemn someone whom God has accepted? If God has claimed them as his adopted child, who are we to say they aren't? You see, our attitude towards our brothers and sisters should be determined by God's attitude toward them. We should accept as God accepts. We should treat them as God treats them. So question number one is, who are we to condemn someone else, someone God has accepted? Question number two, also directed towards my fellow weak brothers and sisters. Who are we to condemn someone else's servant? See, like us, our brothers and sisters' task isn't to please us. Our task is to please God. My task isn't to please you. Your task isn't to please me. Our task is to please God. God is our master. God is our judge. And he alone has the right to condemn. 
So question number two is, who are we to condemn someone else's servant? And question number three, my fellow weak brothers and sisters, who are we to think that we are always right? If our God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing brother or sister disagrees with us, shouldn't we open our minds? Shouldn't we open our hearts? Shouldn't we open our ears before we open our mouths to condemn? Shouldn't we acknowledge that they just might be right? Which means that we might just be wrong. And if we'll do that, we may not come away with changed minds, but we very likely will come away with a changed perspective and an increased respect for our brothers and sisters and a renewed love for them. See, in the church, thinking through a position, that isn't a sign of weakness, that's a sign of wisdom. Who are we to think we're always right? And the fourth and final question, my fellow weak brothers and sisters, who are we to think that our conscience should govern the actions of everyone else? To use the example in Rome, just because my conscience won't let me eat meat, just because my conscience won't let me miss a feast day, that doesn't mean that you can't eat meat. It doesn't mean that you can't miss a feast day. And Paul makes it very clear, and it's very true, that we absolutely must act according to our consciences. He doesn't tell the vegetarians to start eating meat. He doesn't tell those who are attending the festivals to stop attending the festivals. He believes that they should follow their consciences. But he also says we absolutely must not condemn others for violating our consciences. When it comes to disputable matters, I follow my conscience and you must be allowed to follow yours. We really must stop trying to be God to one another. As Paul says, to his own master, He stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are we to think our consciences should govern the actions of everyone else? Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So let's accept one another just as Christ accepted us. And let's do that in order to bring praise and glory to God, to God be the glory. And may our unity stand as a witness to the divisive world around us. And may our unity bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father, it's not easy to be united as you would have us be. And Father, I thank you for the spirit of unity that exists in this place at Netherwood Park. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to to continue to strive for perfect unity so that others may see in us the unity that you have with your Son and with the Spirit. 
So, Father, help us to be people who open our hearts, open our minds, and open our ears. Father, help us to be people who bear with each other, with the weak and the strong. And, Father, help us as a church to always be strong in our faith in you. And, Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So don't forget, next week we'll have questions for the strong among us. It's going to be their turn to squirm as we ask them questions. Now I want to give you uncomfortable challenge number 26. Number 26 should ring a bell with you. That means that we're halfway through this year already. And this is an attending challenge. I challenge you to return here to this place at 5 o'clock tonight to worship in unity with your brothers and sisters. There's going to be some strong ones here and some weak ones here, but they're all going to come here. Let's be here to worship together in unity. It's at 5 p.m. Following that will be a Taco Hut dinner. That is something that really helps out the student center with their fundraising. But most importantly, I want, to be, I want you to be here to worship with us tonight. Let me say, I Mike, just go dead. I'll say this loud. I won't condemn you if you're not here. I won't look down on you if you're not here, but I will rejoice to see you here. And believe me, God's name will be glorified if we're all here. Let's glorify God in song. Let's stand and sing.